Sweet Christmas. I'm Eddie Webb. <laughs> and I'm Chris Wybe. <laughs> and today we're talking about Luke Cage here on Genreless. Hello and welcome to Genreless, uh, episode four of our third season. We're just kind of clipping right through these, actually. It's been kind of fun to, to, to watch these all in short succession. It's giving me flashbacks to when I when they first came out, I had like all three, and then I, would, I sat and I rewatched all three seasons of these back-to-back after Luke Cage dropped. Mm-hmm. I may have skipped Daredevil season two in there just to watch these, but different conversation. <laughs> Well, and actually, that, uh, one piece that, that's relevant to this as we go in is um, we talked a little bit of how Daredevil was obviously the, the first of the, the let's still call it the Netflix or MCU for the moment. The Netiverse. Um, the Defenderverse, I guess. I don't know. Defender Cinematic Universe. Uh, but uh, when we went through um, uh, uh, Jess, Jessica Jones, it was still kind of connected, but not really. Uh, Luke Cage is the first one we're looking at where you really need to have watched at least some of the previous shows to understand some of what's going on here. Uh, uh, Luke is very explicitly coming from Jessica Jones season two, I think. First season. Oh, is it first season? Okay. Well, one of the Jessica Jones shows. Because um, so, he, you know, there's there's explicit references to what happened in the previous show. So you, they're, they're, we're now hitting a point where these things are pretty interconnected. But before we go into all of that, as, as Chris sprung on me last episode, the 616 breakdowns for these things, um, I, we want to talk about Luke Cage as, as a character in the comic books. Uh, so his skill powers, um, he has super strength. It's interestingly, uh, uh, it's been a little hard to find out what his limits are. Uh, all of the initial research I did was five to 10 tons, but Chris has pointed, pulled up some comic references. It's closer to 50, and I'm more inclined to believe that. Uh, because, uh, well, let me go through the powers first, because Luke Cage has some ups and downs in terms of comic book character. Uh, he has superhuman stamina. Uh, he is officially, according to Marvel.com, nigh invulnerable. <laughs> I, I wasn't going to interrupt you, because that's that's not what I was going to do for these 616s. But you said not invulnerable. So now I have to say this. It is it is trademarked by uh, Jay and Miles, but is he not invulnerable in blasting? In All right. Blasting. Cannonball joke out. <laughs> I know. I was thinking the whole time, too. Uh, accelerated healing factor, um, uh, which basically equates to he's bulletproof and really hard to pierce his skin, which is really what this kind of that, that meant out to him. Uh, and he's an expert combatant. He's a skilled athlete. Uh, and he has extended education and is a strong speaker. That's officially part of his skill set. Uh, but again, we, we start off with Luke Cage is, is a character. He came out in 72. He was originally created in 72. Uh, he actually, one of the uh, rare Marvel characters that started off in his own solo series. He didn't like guest star in a previous book and then gain a solo series like say Black Panther. He came out... As Luke Cage, hero for hire, that was his, his um, title starting out. And let's be perfectly honest here. He was explicitly an attempt to tap into the black exploitation movie market 
in the same way that master kung fu was attempted to tap into the martial arts movie market of the 70s. So uh, he, perhaps amusingly, is set up to be a very kind of Jessica Jones star type. He is a professional, he's a private detective, kind of. He's a hero, he has an office, he works for money, and his stance of working for a financial gain is part of the initial uh, uh, impetus for the character to the point where he have an issue which Chris and I both love where Dr. Doom tries to hire him, <laughs> stiffs him on the pavements, and Luke Cage tracks down Dr. Doom to beat the money out of him. He borrows the FF jet to fly over to Latveria to kick Doom's butt for $200. For $200. Not for extra money, <clears throat> just for the money he's owed. Now um, I've just realized that Wow. I, I, so we're playing the Chris interruption game again. Um, <laughs> that, God, I forgot the name of the movie now that I made that other joke. So the John Cusack movie where the sister's coming around all the time, like, you owe me $2. Oh, now yeah. I think that is a shout back now to Luke Cage <laughs> wanting his $200 from Dr. Doom. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, I, I would not surprise me. Uh, but anyway, um, sales on that comic uh, tanked around issue 40. Uh, so there was plans to introduce new character, Iron Fist, and eventually the Iron Fist and Luke Cage comics merged into Heroes for Hire. Um, and going forward, they were Power Man and Iron Fist. Uh, Power Man was kind of Luke Cage's superhero name, although he didn't use it very often. Then after the, the 80s, uh, Luke Cage really disappears as a character. He has a brief solo run in the 90s, which is about as bad as you can expect for a, a, a black character in the 90s written by white men. Um, and then uh, he really comes back, as we talked about last time, in Bendis' run around the same time Jessica Jones starts becoming a character. Uh, and his uh, increased strength and his elocution and education really become a staple of that run because I think you mentioned Bendis has a strong uh, affection for those 70s characters. And he really wanted to remake Luke Cage in a, a more modern setting. And that is the perception we have of Luke Cage going forward. And I think it is ultimately to the betterment. But if you hear this idea of he's educated and a strong speaker and then read the original comics, you will not see that in those comics. <laughs> Uh, uh, although you do have great comments like his catchphrase, which came around to them trying to find ways to have him swear within the comic code. <sighs> and Sweet Christmas is what they came up with. <laughs> and I can't remember if one of them was like, where's my money, honey? Which was... Uh, Maybe. I or, believe them. or if they gave that to uh, Sam Snaps Wilson from back in the day. Oh, God, Snaps. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, white white writers writing black characters. Yeah. Yes. Um, now, I mean, uh, uh, I will say we're, we're joking about that, but on the flip side, um, part of that is you do have some of these creators who are specifically trying to push for more black inclusion into uh, comics. Uh, it was a couple of white writers that actually pushed for Black Panther to get his own series. Um, a lot of Luke Cage, there's pushback, not only him starring in the title, but also having a black supporting cast. And these writers did push for that inclusivity. So, I mean, I, I do want to give them props for, they did what they could within the boundaries they had because the seventies was not really a time where people, comic book writers were looking for more black characters and they pushed hard to make those happen. 
but the main reason why it happened is because it's happening in very low selling books and no one cared, frankly. That so. which unfortunately is a it's a trend that frequently occurs that the only way that you can really get great inclusion and diversity is when the powers that be aren't paying attention. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I, I agree. We need to give them like the props that they deserve for pushing that forward and the flack they took. But also looking back at it now with the modern lens, we can still say the things that we would have liked to have seen to have been better. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. Um, and I have to give a shout out to Dell Comics to actually having the first black hero having mm-hmm. his own solo series, which was Lobo, which was a cowboy that had two issues before it was closed down for various reasons, which uh, I think mostly is for racism and the people in the South refused to like actually sell the books and sent back thousands and thousands of copies of it. And that was actually something that happened in the late sixties um, in uh, black Panther when it was still, and I'm going to have to say the name of the comic jungle action. Mm-hmm. <sighs> um, but it was similar reasons it is like Marvel legitimately said, this won't sell in certain markets. Um, and it really took the writer saying, yeah, but if you have a comic set in Africa, you need a black cast. So, yeah. Uh, but I bring that up mainly because really Luke Cage is one of those characters that have pretty strong change. Daredevil, you can look at the character at different points. He's funnier and a little weird at certain times, but ultimately he's kind of the same character throughout. Jessica Jones, as you pointed out, really has only existed for about 20 years. Um, she's got ties back to some of the silver and bronze age stuff, but really she's a modern character. Luke Cage is one that changed pretty substantially from his bronze age origins to now. And the character we're seeing here is going to be that inter- modern interpretation. Although in one of the episodes I pulled specifically because there are some pretty strong nods to the original comic and it's worth digging into those. <laughs> It'd be great. Um, so before I go into it, do you have any more thoughts about either Luke Cage, the combo character, or about the show as a whole? Likely surprising none of our listeners. I am a fan of Luke Cage. And mm-hmm. I read the comic, read some of his original comic run, which was a little painful to read, but it was felt good to see a black character in the lead. Mm-hmm. And when Bendis took over and made like Cade's the leader of the Avengers and everything else, I was giddy for a long time because that is like the cage I've always wanted to see. And it was just great having that representation there. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree with that. He's people give Bendis a lot of shit, but him salvaging Luke Cage and making him to an A-list character was one of the best things he's done. I think. Uh, agreed. And some of Bendis' stuff is well-deserved, but at the same time, look at all the other things that he did with that. Like without Bendis, we wouldn't have Miles. We wouldn't have yep. Luke how he is now. There wouldn't be Jessica Jones. There would be so many things that we would be missing. Mm-hmm. And honestly, him doing things like I can kill Peter Parker and showing Marvel that you can have legacy characters. Really, that just didn't exist. Uh, and so Bendis is like, no, we can do this. We can do this DC style. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 yes, Bendis has some problems as a writer and he has some legitimate uh, 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 tells and concerns, but mm-hmm. he's also, I agree with you, he's done a lot that things have become gloss over. So, all right, let's dig into this. Uh, episode one, Moment of Truth. 
Luke Cage, a former convict with superhuman strength and unbreakable skin, keeps a low profile as a sweeper at ex-gangster Henry Pop Hunter's barbershop and as a dishwasher at crime boss Cornell Cottonmouth Stokes nightclub, which is called Holland's Paradise. Cage spends one night as a bartender for Stokes, filling in for Dante, who calls in sick. Dante is actually attacking an arms deal between Stokes' men and gang leader D Domingo Colon for his friends Shamik and Wilfredo Chico Diaz. Dante panics and is killed by Shamik, who escapes with Chico and the money. NYPD detectives Misty Knight and Rafael Scarf investigate and impound the Hammer Industries weapons that Stokes was selling. With help from Shades Alvarez, who works for Stokes, Stokes supplier Diamondback, Stokes tracks and kills Shamik and retrieves his share of the money. Stokes' men also support his cousin Mariah Dillard, a councilwoman, and demand contributions for her cause from Cage's landlords. Cage fights them off but refuses payments for his actions. And a lot happens in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that the recap, and there's still some stuff I kind of glossed over, but I mean, because this is really setting up for another kind of crime drama. We talked about how Daredevil was kind of the pretty straightforward Miller-esque punching bad guys until you get to the solution crime drama. Uh, Jessica Jones is much more set up like a, a noir in the sense that you can't trust anybody. You have to outthink the problem and putting Jessica in that environment is actually the interesting part because she's not going to think it through. Luke Cage is much more of a thinker of the three characters that we've seen so far. Um, he actually does try to do risk analysis and assess things. He, him going to his powers, like Jessica, is not necessarily his first move, but he's also more willing to do that if he feels like he needs to. Um, but so we're putting him into this very uh, dense crime uh, drama. There's, there's a lot of factors and factions moving in. Uh, and so unlike with Jessica Jones and uh, Daredevil, we're not uncovering as it goes along. We're dropped right into uh, this, this, this web of, of Harlem crime. And it's also nice because out of the two other characters, Luke is the more affable community-based character, mm -hmm. showing that he cares more about, as you were saying, like the, the risk analysis, but like the repercussions on everyone around him and what's going to happen afterwards. Right. And a lot of that, at least in the first episode, is played more as a, as him being sort of a a solo, more stoic character primarily because he doesn't want to let anyone get too close because they get too close, then they'll be endangered. Mm -hmm. And so that was a nice to see for that one episode. But how we transition out of that after this is a is great to witness as, as more and more people get into his circle. And it shows right. that he cares about the people more than he does about solving the case Morty about does about bringing down the bad guy. It's about the community, which for anyone that knows a little bit about history, you know, it's going to have to do this. Um, <laughs> of course. I mean, Harlem itself is a, has been a, a beacon of black brilliance and greatness for mm -hmm. decades. One of which was the Harlem Renaissance, which minor plug. I remember a little book called Harlem bound about, you know, Harlem Renaissance. Um, <laughs> And I won't go into like a big soapbox I could break out. But the fact that you have this entire mecca to blackness centered on a black character that is trying to protect the community. And mm -hmm. even one of the things during the Renaissance is that you had a lot of gangsters and other people doing illicit activities, preying on the people, but at the same time using that money to try to rebuild the community. 
So it was sort of this cycle of use and betterment that is hard to break given the options they had and like the oppression on all sides. And I think by putting in uh, Councilwoman Dillard in there is a perfect example of that because uh, she epitomizes that conflict. She genuinely seems to care about Harlem. And she is, the character we initially see is talking a lot about all the artistic benefits of Harlem and the contributions it makes to culture. Uh, But there's also another thing which we don't see as much in this slice of episodes. It's more of a running theme throughout season one, but often in small scenes, Luke is seen reading books and all those books are from authors from the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, so, I mean, that's a, there, there's more subtle not. And also a lot of the music that's shown in the, the nightclub, music's another big theme of this. And it's not, quote unquote, modern black music. It shows an entire range of, of over 100 years of black music and black styles. Uh, so the soundtrack is also just amazing on this season. Uh, so, I mean, they're, they're, they're not only explicitly telling you that, but also through the choices of the show, putting the art up for you to see, uh, which I thought was a really great touch to kind of really emphasize that, no, it's not just a catchphrase. Harlem really is this cultural mecca. And you mentioned the show has a lot going on for a pilot. Um, one of the things that a lot of pilots do is they're trying to find their footing. And so mm-hmm. a lot of them are hit or miss. This is a pilot that felt confident from the jump. Like yep. it stepped out with swagger and it's like, this is what we're doing. You can come with us or you can step aside. Right. Um, and, 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 and I think that's one of the things that, that benefits. I mean, it's not surprising that the Luke Cage show is going to be unrepentantly black. Uh, but you're right. It is purely confident. And it's like we're showing you a very specific slice of black culture. Uh, and we're just, you're either on this ride or you're not. Uh, but um, we, we joked in the past couple of shows how the first black character sees a criminal. The first white character you see in the show is a criminal. <laughs> you don't know it then, but Scarf is in fact a criminal. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, they're even having fun with the formula, but like the, 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 really the first, you're talking about how it, it sets up expectations. The first conversation between, uh, Luke Cage and Shamik really tells you the whole premise of the show. Uh, uh, Shamik has a very specific perspective of what he wants out of life. And Luke has a very different perspective of what I'm like, and throughout there you get the conflict because ultimately Shamik is really talking about Cottonmouth's what Cottonmouth's needs are and that ultimately Diamondback's needs. So that's a very specific thing. Whereas Luke Cage is like, no, I don't need to fall into that. I can do different things. And so that conversation at the beginning is ultimately the conversation of the whole season, which I thought was really, mm-hmm. really cool and interesting. And a part of a touchstone, I guess also for me is when it starts how you have Luke and Pops in the barbershop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the barbershop is somewhere that I, I myself have spent a lot of my time in youth growing up mm-hmm. and hearing like those conversations or something that happened. And seeing okay. like the dynamic between those two was grounding and a solid basis for the show to like bring me as a black male viewer of a certain age into the show. Mm-hmm. And getting to hear Pops talk about the other kids and everything else he comes in and how he raises them and how he's trying to take teach them there's more than something on the street is also another nod towards the constant reoccurring cycle of violence and limited choices that are put on black primarily black and other marginalized people and that you have fewer and fewer options until you have to do this thing that people are trying to stereotype you into 
Right. And so that's why you even have Pops who has a criminal record that's gone through it and is trying to like make a positive change for other people in the best way that he can with the limited resources he has. But at the same time, has a solid foot in both worlds so he can try to help navigate that. Mm-hmm. The other thing I like about Luke Cage as a character that this show, again, doesn't shy away from is the fact that Luke Cage is an ex-convict. Uh, he is wrongfully convicted, uh, as the, as every interpretation hastens to admit. But at the end of the day, he's a conflict, and the show doesn't shy from the fact of how hard it is to try to reintegrate society after you've been a convict. You know, it's, it's hard to get jobs, and like, he's working two shitty jobs because that's all he can get. And in both cases, Pop's more or less inventing a job for him to have. And that's pretty, pretty clear. And Stokes is paying him under the table and Luke gets abused because of the fact they know that they, he has no power in this dynamic and he gets take, he gets exploited as a result of that. Um, and that's certainly, I mean, I can't speak to the last experience of it, but I do have known people who are ex-convicts who have dealt with that portion of it. Um, uh, uh, and as I'm also thinking of future shows that we're going to talk about where a similar dynamic of integrating in society after a, a complicated past is going to be relevant too. But in this case, um, his, he cannot escape his past as a convict. And so his choice of the name cage takes on additional resonance in this show, which I find I'm glad that you leaned into because something the comic book kind of dips in and out of. So I, I want to make sure that we point out though, that while he is, an ex-convict part of his problem and trouble is that he is an escaped ex-convict right. compared yes. to an ex-convict that was released to the system that would still be oppressed but that person that would be oppressed that was an ex-convict would have a full social security number and everything else it's limited and if someone decides to like do a background check on them they'll discover that they were a convict and all this sort of thing luke's background on the other hand is made up because he escaped and he doesn't have that that's so true. you have this other person that's automatically oppressed and you have Luke that's going to be lower than that. that has to keep a lower profile. So that's part for, of it I'll, makes me think of his experience is almost like I can't speak to this specifically, but it feels as if that might be more of an immigrant experience that's, that came into the country and they're not necessarily completely legalized or managed to get through the turbulent, troubled legal system that needs to be fixed. And so they're having to work any job that will pay them but they can't express any sort of legal or hazardous issues they have to endure because then they would be arrested. And that's fair. Um, uh, uh, I, I'm glad to clarify that because I realized after you said you want to clarify that, that I was thinking primarily of Pop as I was talking about that um, because Pop and is implied at least one of his customers had done time. But it, all the evidence we have is that they serve their time and then try to come out. Um, and so – Pop speaks in this episode very openly about he knows the trouble of trying to find a job when you're next con. So he's putting on there, but you're right. There is an extra layer of, uh, of Luke Cage is actually on the run. Uh, so um, that, that is another piece that, so like it makes sense why he's in Hell's Kitchen in Jessica Jones. And then now suddenly he's in Harlem because like, I need to go to the part of town because I don't want, you know, think heat's getting pretty bad and I don't want to be involved in that. So yes, I moved to another part of New York take another low profile couple of jobs to try to get some money to get that off of me. And this scene is also one of those great moments where they give you a, your continuity sort of like connection where they go. Yeah. And your girlfriend uptown that like shot you in the face with a shotgun. It's like, yeah, that hurt. It's like, ah, <laughs> all right. So that happened in episode 
I think, 11 or 12 of Jessica Jones. So this means that Luke Cage's show happens about two or three months later. Got it. Thank you, Netflix Averse. Speaking of continuity, um, this show also shows the biggest attempt and ultimate problem with continuity to the larger MCU because there's a small scene of a guy in a street corner selling videotapes of the incident, um, which is now increasingly clear is meant to be the climax of the first Avengers film. But his sign just says the incident, which is fine. They don't know what to call it. The, and it just becomes the capital I incident. But there is like, you know, I have the green guy, I have the flag bearer, I have the guy in the suit. It's like he can't name any names of characters, which for a half second and the, the short time it seems like, okay, he doesn't know who the Hulk's name is or who Hawkeye is, but he should know Captain America and Iron Man by name. Yeah. Those are well-established characters by name culturally at this time in the MCU. So the fact that he can't say those while they're trying to make an attempt to connect to the MCU makes it increasingly clear, like you were saying at the very beginning, that they actually can't. So in my head, when I thought, oh, it's all connected, and I'm rewatching it, it's like, oh, and it's now increasingly obvious that they, there's that firewall between the MCU and these shows. And I, and you were very forgiving when you said that they could just call it the incident, and they didn't know what it was. They knew there were fucking aliens <laughs> flying around on alien ships invading the earth there have been right. movies around for decades about this they should have just said the invasion and left it at that right and then that would have given you almost a more direct link still without saying it right and it's but, another word too but 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 to your, to your point it, it, it's a, it was again it was increasingly clear it's like we can't say what the incident actually is because we may need to pivot and put this onto a different Marvel or Netflix specific incidents that we have to create because we may lose connectivity there. So we have to keep it as vague as possible. And so by calling it the incident, it's like, well, it could be anything with these characters. And maybe that flag character is nuke, you know, or whatever. Um, uh, so, I mean, uh, it, it was one of those things where like, it was weirdly um, agent Carter was more connected to the MCU in set in the forties than this allegedly modern day show, which had, if you think about it, if you count all of these as more or less one really large show that changes name once in a while, it's 11 seasons. It's, it's, it's a lot of TV that's connected together, but they can't reference the, at this point, six or seven movies that came out. It, it's just a wild moment in time that we can't, from a Disney Plus era now, looking back, it's a cave and imagine to a degree, but it's like, yeah, the, the, this stuff is really walled off. I think their biggest connection that they can say that they used was having it be hammer weapons. Yes. And I think like that was that was the the biggest spark for the movie connection they could have that was a direct linkage. Well, that's the question is like, was Iron Man two out at this point? I don't know if it was. I think you know it was think because it was. Because they could put out a couple of Iron Man movies in rapid succession and Right. I will not right. question whether or not they were good or bad because that may be a special someday. <laughs> but but to, as but a to, lover of Sam Rockwell, sorry, as, as someone that loves Sam Rockwell, I could have seen Sam Rockwell as Tony Stark. That's it. I, yeah, quick digression, but Rockwell's portrayal of Justin Hammer is not accurate to the comics, but I like it more than the comics interpretation because the comic interpretation is so boring. And Rockwell is so much fun. But also... Hot take. I actually like Sam Rockwell in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie. So, you know. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, 
this is the the biggest disagreement we've had this entire run of the show. I did not enjoy Sam. All right, this has now become the Sam Rockwell show. Um, I did not enjoy <laughs> Sam Rockwell, Zaphod, Beeble, Brock compared to like the OG one from the God, 90s, 80s, I think, TV miniseries or from the book. 81. I just watched it recently, so that's why I know. Wow. <laughs> wow. I, I, All right. I, I, I felt that having an American play of Zaphod, Beeble, Brock's really adds a level of of what that character is trying to do, which is being the brash American. But we're not here to talk about Zaphod Beeple Brox. But um, we're back back to Luke Cage. We'll, we'll leave the aliens and the lack of invasion for the incident behind. Right. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about with episode one? Uh, the, introdu- the introduction of the incredible Misty Knight. Like, I cannot oh, stress... Hell how extremely awesome Misty Knight was because yes. when the first episode was going to come out, I knew they were going to have Misty Knight and I was concerned about who they would have chosen to play Misty Knight. And now I want, um, God, Simone Missick to be in the main MCU. I want them to bring yes. over Luke Cage and her into the main MCU and like, just ugh, like pop them in ready to go fresh. And I mean, she, it was one of the things that like, as soon as I saw her on screen, I was like, yes, that's Misty Knight. I mean, uh, her hair was perfect. Her attitude was perfect. And I was like, they're not going to give her the robot arm. And then, spoiler, but later on in the show, yeah, they give her the robot arm. And I'm like, holy crap, that's amazing. You know, they, 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 this is a team that really loves Misty Knight. And I'm like, thank you. <laughs> that's not a character I expected. We talked before about how these shows dig into the, the deeper well of Marvel continuity. And, and sometimes, you know, sometimes you get nuke. But sometimes you get Misty Knight, and it's worth every nuke. Nuke is worth getting a Misty Knight as a result. And and a future spoiler: it was I was giddy when I got to see Colleen Wing and Misty Knight together. Yes, yes. And we will we will talk about that in future. Uh, but but I, I think that's it. Nope, there's one more. Oh, I could talk about this one episode for like just a whole podcast. If you there's like a lot so, on this episode. <laughs> The the fact that when Luke decides to actually take an active stance and goes in to help that couple who he owes rent to, because you get like oh, a, yeah. a glimpse already that he is in debt with rent, showing once again how impoverished he is. And literally, he's just barely making it by through everything. Mm. And to go in and to stand up to them and help them. And he doesn't attack them right away. He talks, tries to talk to them, the the gangsters to leave. And instead, they do what gangsters going to do. Right. And... As we've established, I'm, I'm cursing now for the superhero run. They they fucked around and they found out. And it was great to see Luke get offered money and then say, no, I am not for hire. Which is like right. an entire pun on everything that you've come to associate with Luke Cage. Yes. Um, you reminded me that was one more thing is, uh, first of all, yeah, it's 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 comes to the background, but her restaurant's name is Genghis Khani, which I fucking love. <laughs> <laughs> But one thing I really liked is um, uh, they also show an accurate range of accents for their characters in New York. Um, her husband's, her, his accent was a little rougher, um, uh, whereas Connie's, she had an affected, you know, quote unquote, Chinese accents. But then when she's talking to Luke, it's straight into straight American accent. Um, and so it's playing with the idea of, of, of you have to present different faces depending on what you're doing. And 
being a person owning a Chinese restaurant, there are certain expectations. There was actually a study done. This is relevant, I swear. Um, they actually checked uh, people who went to eat Chinese restaurants, how they felt, how authentic the experience was compared to how many typos were on the menu. Hmm. And the more typos were on the menu, the more authentic they felt the Chinese experience was. So now Chinese restaurants, even fluent owners, will introduce typos into their signage and into their uh, into their menus because they see more money. There's a direct correlation between inaccurate English and financial gain. Um, and so seeing them play with that on the screen was actually really interesting because that is a real thing that Asian Americans have to deal with. Mm. And again, it's in this Luke Cage show. And so it's like... <laughs> But they're presenting. This is New York. This is New York as we understand it. And that's something else that I think these shows don't get quite enough credit for is the MCU is essentially set in New York, but it could be set anywhere. And in fact, it is set in Atlanta. I know because I see most of the locations I film at. But these shows are such a love letter to New York specifically. And you see a very authentic New York through these shows, which I think is really interesting. I mean, it's a movie TV version of New York, but they're trying to present as best as they can what the city's actually like. So okay. um, I think that's it for my comments. And we've never been concerned about relevant re- being relevant before. So I don't think you need to add the disclaimer. Fair enough. It, this show is what it is. Episode four, step into the arena. In the rubble of the destroyed restaurant that, chain, that Cage lives above, which I wonder really is called Genghis Khani. Uh, Cage recalls his past as a policeman, Carl Lucas, framed for a crime incarcerated at Seagate Prison, a prison run by correctional officer Albert Rackham. He befriends fellow inmate Squabbles, develops an attraction to psychologist Reva Connors, is forced to engage in illegal fight rings by Rackham, and crosses paths with Shades, also an inmate. Lucas and Connors plan to expose Rackham's activities, but he learns of this after torturing Squabbles to death and has Lucas brutally beaten. Connors asks Dr. Noah Bernstein, a scientist conducting illegal experimental procedures on the inmates in exchange for reduced sentences, to try and save Lucas with a procedure that causes rapid healing. Rackham sabotages the experiments, and the resulting accident gives Lucas his abilities. He escapes and meets up with Connors, starting a new life for her with her under the name Luke Cage. In the present, Cage pulls himself and his landlady out of the rubble and reveals his abilities and name to the media. And so this is the origin episode. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a couple of sides plots but this is pretty explicitly here's luke cage's origin and it's surprisingly comics accurate actually squabbles and the reva connor stuff is additional to the comic continuity but um the the whole rackham um, bernstein thing oh is, is connor's in there so reva is there but it's a little bit different um okay so this is me tr- digging like deep for memory but Luke is actually originally from Harlem and not Atlanta, how they have him in the show. So he's a okay. Harlem resident from Harlem and he was running the streets with Stryker and the two of them uh, eventually meet Riva and Riva is sort of that two friends fall for the same girl, same, same woman. And oh, so she becomes okay. that sort of thing. And then eventually Luke is like the, the fist fighter and Stryker is all with knives. Stryker goes, and tries gets like more dirty and Reva's with Stryker, but eventually Stryker gets captured and Reva runs to Luke for help. Luke comes to help Stryker and sort of help him. And then that's when he gets falsely accused of stuff. And Reva's sort of like the woman between the two. Okay. 
I had forgotten that subplot, but you're absolutely right. Uh, um, so I, I barely remembered it. <laughs> that's fair enough. Um, uh, Squabbles is new, though. I'm pretty sure that. Or if it, if it's not new, it was retconned into it. Because um, I think there was a retcon of adding some stuff to his origin. But in terms of the him getting Rackham being uh, corrupt and uh, Rackham interfering with the experiments, which causes Luke even to the him punching through the wall, that's all pretty much from the comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, the uh, headbands and the gauntlets on him are meant to evoke his comic costume, including the yellow shirt. Uh, to which he looks at and says, this is ridiculous when you're not wrong. <laughs> it's it's a tiara that I could never really get over. And I mean, it's, I don't know. Like on the one hand, I appreciate the comics reference, right? It's like, if you're watching this show on some level, you want to see those kind of little nods, but it just looks ridiculous. I mean, even when he puts it into the, the tank, it's like, why would, why would the headband work that way? Why would you have a metal headband when you're going into liquid? Why would it point down like that? There's, I had so many questions. The, 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 the show was not willing to answer because it's like, but he's in a yellow shirt and you should love that. It It is. All right. Now you force me to do this. So they put him in the head restraint so that it, when he's doing all the shaking around, it keeps him solid in one spot, that hinge your head restraint. And it's pointed down because I got nothing for that one. I was trying. I was trying, but we're on the air. So I, nope. I mean, the gauntlets I can almost understand because it's the, you can't be track of his vital signs. Um, and you want to make sure that if he slips around, that there's still enough connectivity on his skin to, to get that information. That I can almost explain. Um, but but that headband and the, the, the show just love to zoom in on that and make sure you saw that headband as much as possible. And I'm like, okay, I, I got it, show. I, I, yes, this is comic accurate. This is the only time you're ever going to see it in the show. They wanted you to enjoy it. And I'm glad right. that it was quickly gone. So <laughs> yes. what is your favorite part, though, about the origin story told through the TV show? Honestly, um, uh, I think it was important, while Squabbles is new, I think it was important to add him in. Because I think you needed to see Luke's complicated relationship with his situation. Uh, because now he's next cop and he's been put into jail. He recognizes that gives that puts him in a certain amount of danger. And it's like, I can't make friends because I'm a former cop I'm in jail. I know it's, that's, that's what's going to happen to me once that gets out. Um, and realizing he needs to connect to people. He can't live on his own. And through squabbles, he starts to care for, like you mentioned before about the community, to a degree he starts to care about the community, to a small degree, a portion of the community of the prison population. And so that's kind of his step towards being a community leader in some way. Uh, And the fact is that he gets betrayed by so many different people in that situation, but still comes out of it going, I need to do something. I think it was important to have that arc because in the original comic, he wasn't—he was a con, a, a, a criminal who has not been caught, actually being put into jail for the wrong reasons. But in a different situation, he could have been put in jail for legitimate reasons. And then he just kind of escapes and 
struggles with the, I need to make money, but also I can't people find me thing. So it's so much more mercenary and he takes time to evolve from that. Whereas this one, he has kind of start from the gate of like, no, he's a hero. And to be arguably more of a hero than the previous two characters we've talked about. Right. Well, like Darede- Daredevil is really just uh, a guy with a lot of Catholic guilt. <laughs> and Jessica Jones is a drunk that's kind of stumbling through heroism. Luke wants to be a hero and absolutely everything is against him to be able to accomplish that goal. And I think part of the reason though, that we get to see, cause that's who Luke is to start with. And part of the reason he gets to come back to that. Cause you see that he loses some of himself from his time in prison, which is also a, a great reflection of being trapped in an environment and doing things that you don't necessarily want to, to survive. But after he's getting out, the fact that he had Reva there, which then goes back to reinforce the importance of community, mm-hmm. helps him refine himself. And like she sets him up with this other identity and everything else. And that's how he has like records that are too clean, but they exist. Mm-hmm. And it's through the, those two together is what allows him to move forward. And one of the things that we skipped over in Jessica Jones that is touched on in this slightly is that Reva is killed by Jessica, who is being controlled by the Purple Man. Yep. And that's why Jessica is spying on Luke at the start of her own show. Yep. And that sort of becomes a drama between those two. Yeah, and we see that connection. And because Jessica Jones is kind of told to a degree backwards, we don't find out what, what her connection is until later. But we don't understand what she means to Luke until this show. So mm-hmm. it's really, you're, I was about to call on if you didn't, is that they, it's really cool that we're seeing character building branching through uh, to different episodes, to different series. And that's why I have also made the argument that really what we have is 11 at season Defender show rather than four distinct shows. It just has a couple of bad seasons that feature Iron Fist. Other than that, <laughs> it's an 11 season show. Uh, the other thing so, I, go I, ahead. I, having seen, Defenders before. I got to say, I think the only thing I remember from the Defenders regarding Iron Fist is that whenever he would introduce himself, he would say, I'm Danny Rand, the immortal Iron Fist. Like every single time he introduced himself <laughs> to a character, it's like, this is my full name. Please acknowledge I'm as important you are. Please acknowledge I'm as important as you all are. Yes, it'll be. Uh, we will talk about Danny Rand at some point, but today is not that day. No. Um, But weirdly, I don't have a whole lot to say about this episode because it's one of the rare moments in this show where it's actually pretty self-contained. It, 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 this episode is where we do the origin. We knock through the origin. We learned a fair bit about Luke as a person, but from a plot perspective, you can pull this episode out and you wouldn't have too much. The only thing you really need to know from this episode is that shades is also an inmate who will recognize Lucas on site because shades is also part of Cottonmouth's group. And so therefore Luke realizes if shades recognizes me, that causes a problem because we did see in uh, episode one as Shades came by and Luke was immediately kind of trying to avoid his gaze. And now we recognize why it's because Shades would know who he was. And this episode also reinforces the concept of how superpowers are considered bad here. And so showing them is not a great thing. So even when you have Luke saving the owner of the, the restaurant, and holding up everything, he's like, so I have to explain, I'm just kind of strong. And when he finally frees him, he says, please don't tell anybody about this. Even mm, though true. like it was a total heroic moment, he uses powers to keep them both alive and step out into the light to become famous. 
his thing is like, don't let these people know what I can do and who I am. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a fair point. Um, but I mean, again, like from uh, the whole building collapse to Luke escaping, if you just cut past that, it's okay. Luke got out of the rubble. That doesn't matter. But from an emotional journey, this is a critical episode. To understanding Luke Cage, the titular character, you need this episode from a plot perspective. And I, I think that's actually, we talked before about how um, some of these shows could benefit from a couple of episodes being cut. This would be one that would seem like you could cut it, but in actuality, I would argue you can't because you need to know why Luke does what he does. And this show does that. This is the kind of episode where I wish some of these shows in later seasons did more of where if you need to pad it out, spend that time focusing on character rather than just spinning your wheels doing subplots. Mm-hmm. Okay, anything else about this episode? Not about this one. Okay, here we go. Manifest, episode seven. Evidence against Stoke is deemed inadmissible and he's exonerated for shooting a police officer. He threatens to expose Cage's real identity and have him sent back to prison, and Cage decides to leave Harlem. Claire, whom Luke met in the previous episode, convinces him to stay and fight. Stokes reminisces about growing up with Dillard and their grandmother, mobster Mama Mabel. Stokes' musical talents are encouraged by his Uncle Pete, whom Mabel later forces Stokes to kill after learning Pete has made side dealings with her rifles and had molested Dillard. Audrey stands down following the corruption with her, at a precinct and is replaced with Inspector Priscilla Ridley. After talking with Ridley, Knights begins to question Cage when he returns with stolen weapons after having taken them from Cologne. Dillard is forced to resign from the council, leading to an argument with Stokes in which he insinuates that he liked she liked being abused by Pete. Dillard kills Stokes, and Shades helps her frame Cage for the murder. Cage tells Claire about his past, just as he's shot by Diamondback, who knows him as Carl, with a Judas bullet. <laughs> so, I, I picked this because this is kind of Cottonmouth's origin story, and it's very different from the comic. Um, <laughs> Cottonmouth is a very different character, and that's for the best. I mean, Cottonmouth and Diamondback are both, as you can test by the nicknames, uh, snake-themed villains. <laughs> and it was so, good that they did it all. Let's just say. <laughs> I w- I'm only mentioning this because we're specifically talking about snakes. Um, let me let me see if I remember the, the right order. So after Luke flies back from kicking Doctor Doom's butt. Goes back into his office. He's surprised to find two snakes there that attack Luke Cage. <laughs> and Luke ties the snakes up together. And these two big goons come in to to rough up Luke. And Luke, of course, kind of beats, beats them because they're just schmoes. Yeah. And he's like, so who sent you? And they won't tell him anything. It's like, all right, I'm going to shove this snake up your... They sort of spill the beans, and I think in the comic, I can't remember if it's Cottonmouth or Diamondback, but either way, it's one of them that was testing Luke to come and join the organization. To, to go back to show you the importance of their snake theme, that is not really important at all, and it was just a funny story for me to tell. Sorry, go ahead. No, it's, it's, uh, it's a good example of what they chose to keep and what they chose to get rid of, and this is a case of like, Luke Cage is a really cool character. Luke Cage's supporting cast needs a lot of work <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but okay also digression we have now reached one of the problems with continuity where claire is the glue that holds the entire show together and it's getting increasingly implausible at this point <laughs> like it's the okay i can kind of understand why she's fixing up daredevil okay great 
then she makes a, a, a we actually skipped over her appearance in Jessica Jones, um, but she appears Jessica Jones primarily to set up her appearance in Luke Cage, mm-hmm. um, where she becomes not really the love interest kind of sort of in this, even though she was also the love interest in Daredevil. And then she also appears in Iron Fist, which we're not going to cover, and then other shows. So, like, Claire becomes the one character that shows up in everything. And it's a clue at some point someone thought, we should have characters that cross over. Great, we'll make it Claire. And then didn't think beyond, but why would she be in Harlem right now? She's so, a night nurse. She teleports everywhere. Wherever there's yeah. danger, wherever there's injustice, wherever someone needs a night nurse, Claire is there. <laughs> to, to be a night nurse and also convince vigilantes that it's okay to punch people. That's apparently her job. Wow. Um, so that all aside, <laughs> um, I do think it was, I don't, I won't so good or bad. I'll say bold to spend a good chunk of the episode getting sympathetic to the main villain of the show and then kill him immediately. Realizing so, that it wasn't really Stokes's backstory, it's Dillard's backstory you're actually watching. This is the biggest mistake this entire series made. I agree. Hands down. Because there is no one that can replace what Mahersha Ali is doing as Cornell. Like, that is not at all. And we're going to briefly get the introduction of... I think we see Diamond back for like a blink of a moment. Yeah. And if anything, and that said, I didn't have any thoughts about the previous episode. This is where I would start and do a restructure of the entire season of Luke Cage for this entire back half. Mm-hmm. Because before we were saying that like the pacing was great, the story was good, and it's right about here, it completely loses its way. And then you have, I think, two or three episodes where Luke is just hurt and bleeding out, yep. and eventually he... Um, so other stuff happens. But... They needed to change it and have Cornell be the main villain and have had Diamondback be a flunky for Cottonmouth somehow. Even if you just ended up switching the roles and dynamics, since you're already changing their backstories, you could have changed more of it. Right. And had them been enforcers in the final confrontation to have been another like social battle with Cornell. Because one of the episodes we skip here is where both Cornell and Luke are in a church and yes. they're having like this massive, like incredible debate. Because one of the big things about the Harlem Renaissance is that it was a artistic political movement. It was moved by words and art. Yep. And you're getting to see that in action at that church. And those two constantly had that because Cornell could not fight Luke physically. And right. Luke could not fight Cornell in a power sort of gambit other than to like go and attack his different areas. And that is a drama that play, should have played throughout the entire thing. And that is what made the magic happen. Right. No, I completely agree. Um, they were really setting up uh, Cornell to basically be another Kingpin type character. But I think they shied away from that because like, well, we already have a Kingpin. We can't do that again. And I think you could have because Cornell was a very different character from Kingpin. Kingpin, even though they are both master criminals, I felt like Cornell brought an edge and a depth that Kingpin at this stage doesn't have. Kingpin gains it in later seasons of Daredevil, but at, at Daredevil one, Kingpin's just the Kingpin, and it's like you should be mad at him because he's the Kingpin. 
This is the, you know, we spent time learning why Cornell does what he does. I think if we're talking about restructuring, what I would have done is I would have said that everything up here, like until like the end of this episode could change the ending. Um, Cornell kills Dillard. Switch that around, right? Um, because I think everything leading up to that, that thing is a natural thing. And then when you start to, okay, who's Diamondback? Diamondback doesn't exist. Shades has invented Diamondback as a way to try to keep Cornell in line. And when Cornell realizes that Shade has just made Diamondback up, Cornell gets off the chain. And that's where we start to see the increase in stakes. Because the only thing keeping Cornell in line is this threat of Diamondback. If he doesn't exist, then things get worse. I think that would have been a really cool way to pace that, frankly. Uh, I, I like the the idea of that, but for me, I think you need to have as, as bad as as bad as a diamond fight superhero fight was with Luke Cage. You need to have a superhero fight in the show, regardless. It's somewhere along the way because, like, Daredevil had a bunch of fights. I think, but you had the hammer Jessica tech. Like that's you could use. I mean, Cornell could Cornell could just go cool. I'm just using the hammer tech stuff to go after Luke Cage. In for me, that like destroys the premise of Luke Cage. Like the what I what I have not touched on so far that I love in our society as a black man is a bulletproof black man. That is yeah. the scariest thing for white people with fragile egos that are afraid of society and change. Mm-hmm. Like it is um, the world is incredibly oppressive and the American system has worked. The American police force is based off the concept of enslavement. We had enslave enslavers sending out people to capture uh, enslaved people that escaped. And that is what law enforcement built its way out of. And mm. it has not changed that much. And it is constantly killing black people. Mm. And to have someone who is resistant to that, that is trying to promote good is a massive threat to that entire power structure. And mm. to then like remove that superpower from our main protagonist to then make him vulnerable just to being shot goes back into that cycle that I don't want to see. Like that's why the entire concept of the Judas bullet okay. irritated me. Like it's it's like Superman and Kryptonite. Like everybody shouldn't have Kryptonite, right. other than Batman. Right. Um. So, but it, it's a long a, a longer discussion than what we have time for today. But Cotton, we agree that Cottonmouth should have been the primary villain of the entire series. Whatever means or methods he would have used to extend it out is what should have been done. Killing Dillard, I'm not in agreement with because that would have been like the the death of a black woman, which a lot of shows frequently do. Like Doctor Who would kill okay. black women. Other shows would kill black women, which I am not behind. But you would have had to That's figure fair. out something else for her character to do. And even once in this show where she kills Diamondback, sorry, when she kills Cottonmouth, her character starts on a constant downward trajectory the entire time mm-hmm. and becomes just a tool for shades to use which destroys the show and like the greatness that it had going my two right. cents no, no and I, I mean I, I think this is a case where like I said we, we if we're going to cut from this show frankly it should have cut the last few episodes of this it should be an eight episode show and this rework the ending so that way the last episode is what everything pays off and then call it done um, because you're right. It is just two episodes of night nurse taking care of Luke because that's what she fucking does now. Uh, and it's like, we didn't need any of that. Uh, but I do want to talk before I wrap up. Um, 
I'd like to get your thoughts on Shades as a character because he's another one of those characters that were pretty radically reworked from the original comics. Um, but his role in the dynamics I find interesting. I'm curious what your thoughts are. Um, I don't know how much he was reworked. My, I have vague memories of, of Shades and the his sidekick character who were in prison with Luke. Mm-hmm. But I like the idea of like the devil on your shoulder that is constantly mm-hmm. there trying to like move you to one side or the other. But the character should not have taken the amount of prominence that he eventually takes. Yeah. Okay. That, that, that was kind of where my track was that I, I, I feel like when you look at him from these episodes, that he's, he's present exactly the right amount in these three slices. Um, he should be a character that shows up a little bit, whispers in someone's ear, takes a step back. He's the kind of character that when he walks through a scene, the audience should be going, Oh shit, what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, he should be a signifier instead of a character. And uh, I agree that when he starts, basically when he starts seducing Dillard, um, it, it, it just becomes weird and ugly. Uh, and I, I feel like that was a character that, because in the comics, that's why I reworked from comics. Cause the comics, he was just that he was just a flunky. Um, and when you see a guy with shades in the background, it's just a visual thing for comics to go, Oh, I know that guy. I should probably be worried about this now. Um, so I think, I think it was a case where they, they got rid of an amazing character and had to fill in the gap and they just didn't have anything else to, to, to fill in that gap with. And now having said all of that, I would have even been, I would have been better if they had, if they'd killed Cornell and Dillard had gone in the opposite direction and become had become justice. No, no, no. I mean, like, she doesn't even become a criminal. She just sort of goes like straight down and becomes like a tool of shades. Like if oh. she'd taken over Cornell's operation and she was still doing the political aspect, turning her more into a Stephanie St. Clair than what she was already leaning towards. For anyone who doesn't know, Stephanie St. Clair was called like Queenie. She was like the Queen of Harlem. She ran like all the numbers and everything else. She's a person that fought the white gangsters coming in until like the bitter end. Mm-hmm. And she had like her own lieutenant. And they were like a powerhouse. And it would have been great to see her step into that role and then absorb taking all of Cornell's stuff and her own stuff and becoming a greater character and becoming like the ultimate threat. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can see that too. Um, becoming, using this show's language, uh, uh, to becoming the actual successor to Mama Mabel um, or yep. to the legend of Mama Mabel. Because one thing that the show does is interesting is that they, Mama Mabel's a character that kind of gets referenced up to this point. Um, and people seem to hold her in really high regard. And then we actually see in this episode what kind of woman Mama Mabel was. And she's much more complicated, which is interesting. But then the show does nothing with that. But you're right. If she had grown into that legend and took that le- that mantle onto herself, then you get into a really complex thing of like the legend of a person versus the reality of the person. That could be really fun, interesting, and compelling. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't happen. So then we're left with what we got. Which I think is a, a good way to kind of summarize this is that Luke Cage is um, – we talked before about how Jessica Jones was frustrating because it was such a good season and subsequent seasons don't take advantage of that. This is a faster decline of that. Like the first seven episodes are so full of potential and then it squanders it pretty fast. And then subsequent seasons don't really recover from that. And which is a shame because I feel like 
80 to 90 percent of the casting is so fantastic. Uh, this mm-hmm. is such an amazing cast. Um, they have some really good actors with some really fantastic writing, and then it just goes to shit in such a short period of time. Yeah, that's that's pretty much sums up all my thoughts too. <laughs> Um, so it's kind of a down note, but let's leave Luke Cage on, but luckily not be the last we're going to talk about this run of TV because we have what's coming up next. We have Danny Rand, the immortal iron fist. No, we talked about this. (laughs) We had a meeting Uh, and everything. Uh, no, it would be a cold day in hell if we did that. Um, (laughs) the, the next one that we're going to do, this really shocks some people given how we've talked in some of our stances, it's going to be the Punisher. Mm-hmm. And we're going to, oh, for the entire Punisher cast, I'm going to talk just like this. We're going to do the Punisher. We're starting with season one, episode one. 11 to 3 a.m. Season one, episode four, resupply. And rounding it out with season one, episode eight, Cold Steel. If That's you do that next episode, voice. your voice will be gone within like 15 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll, I'll add it for a specific spikes to like spice things up a little bit. So yeah, next episode, we're going to do The Punisher. It's going to be season one, episodes one, four, and eight. Mm-hmm. Um, this will be good because this is actually one of the one shows I haven't watched any of until we did the show. So I'm coming into this extremely fresh. And, and I've, I've actually watched episodes and I have a lot of thoughts, but this is... Definitely an interesting one to talk about. So uh, that's going to be and next week. For people that are curious, if you want to see where the Punisher first showed up, he first showed up in Daredevil season two. Yes, I, I also think I had to look up now. So he, he and he a fair chunk of season two. So again, it's going to be a show where going in, it's going to assume certain knowledge. So you might want to at least look up the wiki. If you don't watch season two, at least look up the Wikipedia entry of what Frank Castle goes through. Although the first two minutes do kind of really fast recap it. So. <laughs> Um, so if people wanted to talk to you about your amazing Punisher voice online, where would they find you? You could find me on Twitter at darker underscore Hugh, or you could find me in the dark Hugh discords, or you can come to my website and, uh, buy something at, uh, darkhughstudios.com. What about you? Whew. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Pugsteady. That's P-U-G-S-T-E-A-D-Y. My website's Pugsteady.com. Or you can find us on the Darker Hue Discord talking about stuff and things. I'm really, I'm not talking about as much stuff and things because I'm in the middle of, of moving right now. But I'll be back to talking about stuff and things soon, I promise. Awesome. So Peace, uh, next week, Punisher. Talk to you all later. Mm-hmm.